Welcome back, faithful listener. You are tuning in to The Crucible. The Crucible here is a new podcast where we take ideas, philosophies, theologies, and place them in the heat of the crucible of scripture in order to remove impurities and to remold those theologies, ideas, and philosophies to be more biblical. So we are here to purify uh, all different claims in order to pursue truth, truth that is found in the word of God. Well, saints, two days ago was October 31st, which represented five 506 years since uh, what we call Reformation Day, where in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, and at least in popular thought, kickstarted what we now understand to be the Reformation. So the last few weeks, we've covered various reformational topics, and this will be our final installment where we're primarily focusing on reformational issues. We will certainly address uh, other reformational issues throughout this podcast, but we will move forward to other issues as well. So before we get into our topic for today, uh, I want to begin by recapping briefly where we've been so far. Uh, The last few episodes, we've uh, quite thoroughly debunked several uh, anti-Protestant myths, several Roman Catholic claims that simply caricature and strawman the Reformation to a point where we don't even recognize Protestant theology. But some claims we've debunked are as follows. First and foremost, we have debunked the claim that the Reformation represented a theological novum. Uh, Theological novum simply means that it was new theology, that it was unknown for 1,500 years until Martin Luther came on the scene and made it up. Uh, This idea that uh, the church was in apostasy for 1,500 years, that after the last apostle died, the church simply ceased to exist, or at least was always heretical until our uh, savior, Martin Luther, came on the scene to set everything right. No mature Protestant believes that. Why? Because we don't have to, because there is great continuity in church history and the Reformation. Uh, We could spend much more time delving into this, but I am very confident throughout my reading of the Church Fathers that there is great continuity uh, between the first six centuries of the Church and the Reformation. Uh, Looking at Church Fathers like Augustine, Chrysostom, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Ignatius, uh, Athanasius, and so many others, we find that there are numerous teachings found in the first six centuries that uh, either are identical to the Reformation or are in great continuity with the Reformation theology. And this should not surprise us since Reformation theology is simply biblical theology. That if the church fathers were reading the same Bible the Reformers read, we should not be surprised that they came to similar conclusions, even though there is a millennia uh, between the two groups. So not only is that false claim debunked that uh, the Reformation theology was unknown for 1,500 years <clears throat> by appealing to the Church Fathers. But even leaving the Church Fathers, we saw in a previous episode that there was hundreds of years before Martin Luther, a number of individuals and movements that certainly uh, showed that the Reformation didn't come from a void, uh, that it didn't come from nowhere. Uh, what we call proto-Protestants are those who came before the Reformation that really kind of set the stage for Reformational beliefs. We looked at the Waldensians in the 12th century 
century who uh, denied purgatory, denied the papacy, denied uh, praying to saints, a number of issues uh, that Martin Luther and all the Protestant groups would also deny. We looked at John Wycliffe and his group, uh, the Lollards, uh, who clearly practiced Sola Scriptura, also denied praying to the saints, transubstantiation, uh, the papacy, uh, all of these issues. Then we looked at Jan Hus and the Hussites, who also uh, held to many of these similar beliefs. And so uh, before Martin Luther, we have three to four hundred years of history of, of Christians seeking reform. Even though uh, the Waldensians, the Lollers, and the Hussites uh, did not achieve the same level of success, say, as Luther did, we recognize that uh, these Protestant beliefs go back to not 500 years ago, more like 900 plus years ago. And then, of course, we recognize it's found in the church fathers and scripture as well. So suddenly, the Reformation is not a theological novum. Suddenly, to be deep in history uh, means that we find Protestant beliefs all over the place. So if we debunk that, further we debunk the idea that Protestantism, or sola scriptura specifically, leads to chaos, that Protestants just simply can't agree there's disagreements everywhere. Certainly within Reformational churches, there are differences. There is a diversity of theological thought, but there's greater unity than what our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox counterparts uh, pretend there is. Uh, that we recognize that conservative, theologically conservative, Lutherans, Anglicans, Methodists, Baptists, non-denominational Christians, Presbyterians, and so many other ones, uh, other groups, hold to the five souls of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, Soli Deo Gloria, that there is these five solas that unite the Reformation teaching and unite them under uh, these fundamental gospel truths, that all Protestants agree on who God is and what the gospel is. So there's great unity in the midst of diversity. And really, um, that's just part of the, the Protestant bloodstream. And any difference that there is in Protestantism, I can promise you that there are equal or similar differences in our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox communions. In fact, part of being a Christian in this fallen world until King Jesus returns is that we're always going to have an imperfect theology, although it is a sufficient theology for our salvation. Um, that's just the way God uh, deemed it in his providence, and Protestants find great unity in the midst of our diversity, um, something that our uh, non-Protestant friends uh, generally refuse to acknowledge. Well, saints, um, I think once we clear up some of these misconceptions, we find that Protestantism is much more biblical and much more historical than what our non-Protestant uh, neighbors and friends want to admit it is. But I want to now transition to our topic for today. And our topic today uh, is going to be imputation. Have you heard that word before, imputation? Um, if you haven't, that's okay, but this is the one word that not many have heard of, but makes an eternity of difference. Before I look to define the word, I have a feeling that you actually uh, know what it means without actually knowing the word itself. Uh, let me paint a picture for you and think through this scenario as I explain it. Imagine with me that after your life, you die and that you're standing before the Father, you're standing before God as your judge, and that you have Satan on one side of you, accusing you of all your sins, pointing out all the times you've broken the Ten Commandments, and not just word and action, but also in your thought. And there is a massive, massive list of sins you've committed. So Satan's accusing you. He's the prosecutor. You're the defendant. You're standing before God as your judge. And with all these accusations against you, let me ask you this. 
on what basis, on what grounds would you expect God to slam that gavel and say not guilty, to slam that gavel and say you are righteous when Satan, the great accuser, is listing out all your sins? What will you defend yourself with? What will you present God in that courtroom to say you're actually not guilty and you're righteous? What will you present the Father? And now most of us are thinking right now that we can't present anything really we've done, said, or thought. Because even if we have a few righteous things that we can present the Father, surely those won't outweigh the numerous things Satan has on his list. So what will we present the Father? Most of us right now are probably thinking, I have nothing that would be sufficient. Rather, I will simply look to Christ alone that I will look toward Jesus Christ, to his life, death, and resurrection, and I'll look to his grace, love, and mercy, and say, God, you have no reason within me to find me righteous. Satan has made that clear. My conscience has made that clear. The only one who can save me is if Christ rises to my defense and advocates for me on the basis of his finished work on the cross. That's what most of us are thinking, right? That Jesus' death, resurrection, and life will ultimately be what saves us, not anything we've said or done. Friends, if that crossed your mind today, you know what imputation is, even though you may not have known what the word meant. Let me explain. So imputation, the Greek word for that is logizomai, where basically this word means to credit, to consider, or to reckon. So uh, let me give you uh, one of the biggest verses and best verses here where uh, logizomai or imputation is used, and that's Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Listen closely here as I unpack more of what I mean by imputation. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now you might say, I didn't see the word imputation there. Oh, you did. It was just updated to modern English. So when you see the word counted, that is when you should think imputed. When you see credited, maybe that's credited or reckoned in your translation, that's also where imputed should be used. So let me add it in. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not imputed as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is imputed as righteousness. So imputed means counted, credited, or reckoned. In other words, it means transferred to your account. So notice how this verse functions. It says to the one who works or to the one who does work, thinking of like clocking into your nine to five job, that when you clock in and clock out, your wages are not imputed, credited, reckoned, or counted as a free gift, but rather it's as your paycheck right? You earned that. The employer would be in the wrong to not pay you because it's not a free gift that they can choose to give you or not. It's something they owe you because of your work. And what Paul is saying here is that salvation or justification is not about working. It's not like wages that you earn. Verse five, to the one who does not work, who does not treat salvation like a nine to five job, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited, imputed, reckoned, or counted as his righteousness. Listen closely here. Paul says 
that your righteousness uh, that will avail before the Father, what will earn your justification, what will get you that not guilty verdict. By the way, that not guilty verdict, another term for that is to be justified, to be righteous, to be found not guilty. Paul is saying here that's not something you earn because you can't earn it. In fact, Paul earlier said Romans 3 says, for the wages of sin is death, that our wages earn us death. But the free gift of eternal life is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation or life is a gift. Death is a wage. Sin earns us death. Christ earns us life. Therefore, when we're connected to Christ by faith, we receive life. Let me again engage with verse 5. To the one who does not work but only has faith. Saints, this is where we get faith alone. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul is saying that you don't have to work, you only have to believe. And it's not your belief that earns you your righteousness, it's your belief that connects you to the one who is righteous and connects you to Christ. Let me hone in on one other issue here. Uh, Paul says to the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, listen closely here, that God justifies the ungodly. Isn't this unjust? Wouldn't a righteous judge condemn the ungodly, not justify them? What judge would look at a guilty person and say not guilty? Would look at someone who's a sinner and say you're sinless? That would be an unrighteous judge. In fact, fun side story here, uh, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, did his quote-unquote inspired translation of the Bible, and he has no room in his theology for justification by faith alone. So he actually tweeted this verse to say, uh, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who does not justify the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Joseph Smith could not understand how a good God could justify the ungodly, that he actually changed the verse to mean the opposite opposite of what it means. Saints, listen closely to this. God can look at you as an ungodly, wretched sinner, and he can justify you because he's not judging you on the basis of your work, but he's judging you on the basis of someone else's work. That when you trust in Christ, the Father sees Christ in you, and he judges you on the base, basis of Christ's perfect righteousness. Therefore, he sees godliness in you because he sees Christ in you. And this is what imputation is. That imputation is when Christ lived a perfect sinless life, and that sinlessness or righteousness is credited to our account, is imputed or reckoned, is considered ours while our sin is credited imputed or reckoned to jesus when he died on the cross so that jesus was treated as if he was a sinner even though he wasn't and we are treated righteous as if we are righteous even though we aren't actually perfectly righteous so your faith connects you to christ christ is your righteousness and it's imputed or credited to you Saints, hopefully this is making some sense, but imputation or this transferring to your account is something that's all over the pages of scripture. Let's start in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve commit the first sin, that they uh, rebelled against God, they were tricked by the serpent, and therefore uh, God was looking for them after this sin. And God said, where are you? And when he finds them, he finds that Adam and Eve were now embarrassed of their nakedness, and they tried to sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame, or we could even say to cover their sin. They worked to try to create their own covering. This was insufficient. When you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, you'll find that God covered them with something else. It says that God clothed them with animal skins before he sent them out of the garden. Listen to this. 
Adam and Eve tried to make their own clothing. They worked for it. That was insufficient. So God himself gave them clothing. And what were they clothed with? They were clothed with the skins of a sacrifice that an animal died for their sin. And then they were clothed with that animal skin. So the sacrifice that died in their place, they were clothed with to cover their sin and their shame. Again, in Genesis, God said, in that day, you will die. That if you disobey me, you will die. They may have been spiritually dead at a point and separated from God in the garden, but notice they didn't physically die, but something died in their place. An animal did, and they were clothed with the the skin of that animal death. So already we see here that Adam and Eve will be clothed with a clothing that they did not make, but God gave to them, and specifically it's the clothing of a sacrifice. So let's now go to Zechariah, actually. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And listen closely to this, as I think this often gets overlooked, but this picture of God sacrificing something in our place and then clothing us with it is what we mean by imputation, that Christ died our, our death and then we are clothed with his righteousness. Listen closely to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to him who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So here we see a picture kind of like the one I described to you earlier where the high priest Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan was accusing him of all the wrong things that he has done. But then this angel of the Lord, hint, hint, probably Jesus, stands up in his defense, advocates for Joshua, rebukes Satan, and then uh, Jesus or the angel of the Lord removes the filthy garments from Joshua uh, symbolizing the removal of his sin, but then he puts on, or rather he gives Joshua clean vestments, pure clothes, a clean turban, which represents righteousness. So this exchanging of clothing, just like Adam and Eve exchanging the fig leaves to cover their nakedness for animal skins. Here, Jesus is giving Joshua clean clothes to replace his dirty clothes, rebuking Satan, removing the filthy garments, removing the iniquity, removing the sin, and God himself giving Joshua clean clothes or righteousness. Not clothes he made, not a righteousness he earned, but a righteousness that comes from God. Again, this is clearly what imputation means. Uh, if this doesn't convince you uh, enough, let's go ahead and jump to another section of scripture where we see imputation clearly outlined. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice here again that he made, God made someone who never knew sin to become sin. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus never sinned, but he was treated as if he was a sinner. 
That's why he died on a cross. That's why he bore the wrath of God. See this in Isaiah 53. That's why he was crucified, to bear our sins, to bear our punishments, to propitiate the wrath of God. So even though Jesus was never an actual sinner, he was treated as if he was because he bore our sin on our behalf. So our sin was imputed, credited, reckoned, or transferred to his account. But then notice the second half of the verse. So that in him, we might become the very righteousness of God. Just as Jesus was never truly a sinner, we never are truly perfectly righteous. But just as Jesus was genuinely treated as if he was a sinner because he bore the real sins we earned, we are treated as if we are actually righteous because we bear and we receive the true righteousness of Christ. This imputation, this transferring, it's, it's a beautiful picture. Imagine, for example, you owe a great debt before the Father. Christ earns righteousness that is then given to your account, transferred to your account to pay off your debts. Imputation, crediting, reckoning, transferring, all of these are beautiful terminology that is the very foundation of the gospel itself. Let me conclude today with one final verse, Revelation 19, 7 through 8, and we'll see here again not just imputation, but also how sanctification plays into this. Revelation 19, 7 through 8 says this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints, or in some translations, the righteous deeds of the saints. That here in Revelation, we see that the bride has made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? How has the church made herself ready? She was given to her. It was granted to her a clothing that she might put on, a fine linen, bright and pure. This idea that the church is given clothing to put on fits perfectly with Adam and Eve in Genesis, fits perfectly with Zechariah right, and the high priest receiving clothing fits perfectly with Romans 4 and 2 Corinthians 5, where Jesus, as our righteousness, gives us his righteousness for our clothing. I do want to touch on one translational thing here. Some translations in Revelation 19 say that this fine linen was the righteous deeds of the saints, while in the actual Greek it says, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints, that many commentators recognize that this text could be referring to two things. One, it could be referring to the perfect imputation of Christ's righteousness as our clothing. After all, God gave it to her, so it fits perfectly with the verses I just described. Others recognize it could also be referring to the righteous actions the saints perform after they are saved, otherwise called sanctification. My understanding is that it could apply to both, that when we get to heaven, when the church is prepared for her husband as a perfect bride, that our clothing will be the perfect righteousness of Christ, but then also we have become good people. We have become righteous people, even though that righteousness is not the basis of our justification, it certainly is the result of our sanctification. So again, throughout all these texts, we see that imputation is essential to the gospel. Imputation is something only found in Protestant theology. Roman Catholic theology, Eastern Orthodox theology, Mormon theology, Jehovah's Witness theology, all these non-Protestant theologies reject imputation, and therefore you're left standing before the Father, presenting to him not the perfect righteousness of Christ to clothe you, but rather you're presenting your own cooperation with Christ and grace to try to essentially be good enough to enter heaven. And if any, say any Roman Catholic thinks I'm caricaturing their perspective, I have to ask, what is purgatory for? Purgatory is for those Christians who aren't good enough. 
those Christians who aren't pure enough, those Christians who aren't sanctified enough. They certainly will enter heaven eventually, but they have to receive temporal punishments before they can stand before the Father, perfected enough to enter heaven. Protestants, and I think many church fathers, and I think the apostles reject that entirely. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 says, For by one offering, for by one sacrifice, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That in Christ we are perfected before the Father, because we are given a clothing, a righteousness that is not our own, but is Christ. That Christ lived a sinless life, therefore in Christ we are the very righteousness of God. That we are clothed not with fig leaves or filthy rags or imperfect works that we've tried to perform, but rather we are given a clothing uh, as the bride of Christ. That just as Zechariah was given a new turban and new vestments, as Adam and Eve were given clean animal skins, the church is given a perfect white clothing, which is the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, before the Father one day, we can say, yes, Satan has accused us, and he's not wrong. Yes, our consciousness accused us, and it's not wrong. Yes, we are sinners, we are imperfect, but don't look at me, look at Christ in me. That standing before the Father, we can say, uh, we can be confident of our assurance of receiving that justification, that not guilty verdict, because we can have assurance that Christ never sinned and that perfect righteousness is now ours. That just as our sin was paid for in full on the cross and Jesus says it is finished, his sinless perfect life is now ours, is our clothing, is transferred to our account. So on judgment day, God will declare us justified, not guilty, because our sins have been dealt with and we are wearing, we have in our account, we truly possess in Christ his perfect righteousness, which is more than sufficient. Saints, this is why Protestantism is essential. This is why the Reformation theology is so important, because the gospel itself is at stake. That's uh, what the apostles taught, what the prophets taught. All of that is at stake. And if we reject imputation, we are removing a foundational piece of the gospel, and I fear lose the gospel itself. Let me close here as you meditate on this beautiful truth of imputation, as you think that you have the righteousness of Christ, therefore can be confident on judgment day, that you can think that your sin is paid for in full by the excruciating death of Christ, and he conquered it in the resurrection. That as you think of these beautiful truths, a wave of assurance should come over you, and the beauty of Christ and the gospel should should be magnified even more in your heart and in your soul. But let me close with a beautiful quote from an ancient Christian in the second century. This quote comes from a letter called the Epistle to Diognetus. Uh, this was a letter written in the second century. And I want you to listen to this theology. And I want you to listen to it. And in its words, you'll not just hear the theology of Martin Luther and John Calvin, but you'll also hear the theology of the Apostle Paul. And just listen closely how this magnifies Christ and how this is a medication to all of our souls this afternoon. Here's the quote, again, from an ancient Christian in the second century. Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified, except in the Son of God alone? O oh, sweet exchange! 
Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in the one righteous person, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Saints, I can't help but agree with this ancient church father. Oh, sweet exchange. What a beautiful thing the gospel is. And you can't have the gospel without a proper uh, understanding and application of the imputation of the perfect work of Christ. God bless you, and I'll see you right back here next time on The Crucible.